0: Would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 18 is our text for study. I know I said we were going to go on to chapter 32, but there's just too much uh, in here occasionally. We'll we'll get there eventually. Exodus 24. And we can't skip this chapter because it is the, the record of God's covenant with His people. And it follows on chapters 20 through 23, where God has given a lot of material that we are accustomed to calling law or calling regulations or rules. And so it'd be wrong to skip from that onto another section of Scripture without understanding God's emphasis where He follows immediately upon the giving of those instructions with this emphasis. On relationship. He wants to make it very clear to His people in Israel and to us as well. He wants to make it abundantly clear that He does not identify Himself as the rule giver. He identifies Himself as the Father. And it is out of that relationship that all of these instructions come. It's not that I'm making that up, it's made very clear, not only in the structure of this whole section, but it will become clear in the structure of this very chapter. So with hearts eager to be refreshed in the gospel, I urge you to look with me beginning in verse 1 as we read Exodus 24. It's in your bulletin, or you can look at it in your Bible. Then He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And He did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, "'Come up to Me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction.' So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, "'Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and forty nights. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, would You open our eyes that we would see Your holiness. Would You open our ears that we would hear Your grace and open our hearts that we would believe that we are loved by God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall on us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said together, amen. Many years ago I was preaching on the radio, we had a radio broadcast in, in St. Louis and at the time, I was preaching through the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, it was a delay, a one-week delay in the, in the airing of the sermon, so I had preached the week before on Deuteronomy 4 verse 40, where God says, "'I have given you my statutes and my laws, my commandments,' That life may go well with you. I'm giving you this law so that life will go well with you. And I made the point that, that God always works that way. He, he, he gives His law so that life would go well with us. And he, he wants life to go well with us because He loves us. That His law is an expression, His directions are an expression of His loving grace. The day after that that, uh, aired, uh, someone called the church and asked for me, and she was, this woman was very angry, very angry with me she was going to set me straight, that God doesn't give His law by grace. God is not under obligation to do that, and we're not to be motivated to obey His commandments by love or grace. He just is God. And because he is holy, we must obey him. And if we don't, he will punish us. And that's it. That's, that's a full stop right there. There's no other need, no need to explain anything else. God's law is to be obeyed. And it doesn't matter whether it's for our good or not. God is God and we are. Well, I said I, there many points there that I could agree with, that God is our Creator, God is sovereign, God has a right to tell us what to do, we have no right to question Him. But I said, I'm just explaining to you what God says about Himself. God wrote that, not me. God said, I'm giving you my law so that life will go well with you. And God's not the kind of parent that I have been in, my, in the past where I used to tell my kids if I told them to do something and they said, why, I would just say, because I told you so. God's not like that. God, God doesn't have to be like that. God can be like that, but God isn't. He, he gives gracious explanations for why He gives His commandments. Here are my commandments. I'm giving them to you so that life will go well with you. At that point, she started crying. Not just crying, she was wailing. Her heart was breaking, because she said, just last night I asked my husband if he loved me, and he told me, I love you according to the law. She told me who her husband was. It made perfect sense. He was well-known in our community as a Christian activist who never won anybody to his causes because he was so hateful. He was so angry. He was so harsh, so legalistic. And so she said, I heard what he was saying to me. He was saying to me he felt no love for me. He was only loving me because God commanded him to love me. Praise the Lord, over some time with explanation, she came to the point of realizing that her husband's conception of law was wrong, it was unbiblical. came to embrace the gospel revealed in Scripture, came to see that there is not this radical division between law and gospel, but that all of God's Word is gospel. It's all good news because it comes out of his heart of love for us. Now, the Bible makes that point explicitly, as we've said from Deuteronomy 4 and many other places in Scripture. It makes it by means of historical order. For instance, when, when God brought the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt, he, he brought them out before He gave them the law. So that there could be no confusion that, oh, well, because we said we would obey His law, because we've been marginally obedient, God has rewarded us with escape. No, He brings them out. He brought them out even while they were clinging to some of their idols. He brought them out. He redeemed them. And only after He redeemed them did He give them the law as a response to grace. And He makes that point, as I said, uh, before he makes, he frames this whole section with grace, and look at how he does it in this passage. This chapter is an example of a chiasm, a literary technique in Hebrew. We've talked about it numerous times, where the Hebrew writers would put the main point of the passage in the middle. You know, when we're taught to write, we, we make a topic sentence this is what I'm going to talk about, and then we explain it. But a literary technique of Hebrews, of the Hebrew writers, was to put their their main point in the center, and everything around it by parallel structure works its way to the middle. So that's what happens in this passage. The outside of the passage is about worship. The inside of the passage, slightly inside of that, is about uh, the commandments. And in the very middle is God's welcome of us as His friends. Let me show you how it plays out in the text beginning in verses 1 and 2 framed by the whole passage framed by verses 1 and 2, verses 9 to 11 and 15 to 18. This is an example of what I uh, alluded to last week in, in Mary Wilson's research in her dissertation when she demonstrated in her dissertation from Deuteronomy that all Of the law, every instruction of Scripture. That all of the law, Mosaic law, is framed by worship. That that that, uh, as she puts it, the epicenter of Israelite life of God's people was to be worship. It drove everything. Worship was the the way they learned how they were to be reconciled with the Holy God, how they were to live in a right relationship with Him. And worship was also the epicenter from which they would understand how they were to serve other people, especially the least of these. Worship was and is the driver of everything in the Christian life. It's in worship that we understand how we're to be reconciled to a Holy God. It's here that we are met with our sin, as Dan pointed out to us. It's, in, it's here that we learn that we are sinners, that we have fallen from the glory of God, and that in comparison to His holiness, we are nothing. We deserve His wrath. And it's here in worship, by the structure of our worship, by the words of our worship, that we understand that the only way we're going to be reconciled to God is by the blood of Christ substituted for our sins. And it's here in the context of worship that we hear the application of the Word of God of how we're to live our life toward one another and in the world. I want you to notice this remarkable statement that that Moses gives us in verses 9 to 11. It's it's, it's almost a throwaway line, he says, and they saw, verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. This This is what Ezekiel will see as well. He saw the Son of Man on a pavement of sapphire stone. Now commentators do backflips and all kinds of contortions to try to make this sound like they didn't actually see God, and and the way they, and the reason they, they give, some of them give such energy to proving that they didn't see God, they just saw a reflection of God indirectly, so forth, is because uh, later in the book of Exodus, said nobody can see God and live. Well, why do you think it says in verse 11? that God did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. Because, yes, ordinarily you don't see God and live. But here, these sinful people, we know that Nadab and Abihu and Aaron will will sin profoundly. We know Moses' sinned from the past. These sinful men were welcomed into the presence of God. They saw God. And God allowed them to live. You know, it's a dangerous thing to come into worship. Because here in this corporate worship service, God reveals Himself in a way that He doesn't reveal Himself any other way. He reveals Himself in, in, a, in a way that, by, that, that we are connected with the worship that is occurring in heaven. Bad things can happen to people, the Bible says, as people come arrogantly and carelessly into worship. Nadab and Abihu later were killed for their careless way of coming into worship. Somebody said that that we shouldn't come in our Sunday best to worship. We should come with helmets and flak jackets because it's dangerous to come into the presence of God. He says the, the glory of Lord is like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. We've come into the presence of God, and not only are we told, not only are we allowed to live, but we're told as we embrace Christ that we're His treasured possession. And when you're His treasured possession, as we said last week, when you realize That you should be dead, that that you you should be condemned to hell, that you deserve the judgment of God, and He has not only withheld it from you, but He has drawn you close, and He has called you His treasured possession. You can't help but worship. I know we're all frustrated that we can't sing. I hate it myself because we also come here when we realize the grace of God. We can't keep our mouths shut and one mouth singing is not enough. We we need to join with the people of God. That's that's the way we should respond. Then it turns us outward. This worship, this worship of realizing that of the grace of God to us and His calling us His treasured possession turns us, as it did the Israelites here, to obey, to say, whatever you want me to do, that's what I will do. Verse 3 and repeated in the parallel verses 3 and 4, 7 and 8, 12 and 14. If, if worship is the frame, like we said last week, then the mat inside are the words you say, w- words? Why does He just call them words? These are commandments. These are rules, regulations. Well, that's not even the way the Ten Commandments were referred to. Look back at chapter 20, just a few pages over, chapter 20, I, I know you see at the top of your paragraph. From the, those who put your particular Bible together, it says at the top the Ten Commandments, but that's not what God calls them. In verse 1, God spoke all these words, these ten words. Davar is the Hebrew word for word. God spoke these words, and Moses repeated these words, the ten words, and all of the words explaining the ten words that follow. And when they heard them, God's people said, that we will do. Why does He call them words? Because, again, He's emphasizing, I am your Father. I'm giving you my word. These are words of a Father. They are words of instruction. They are words of regulation. Yes, they are household rules. They are words of rights. They are words of, of uh, promise. The words of God from beginning to end of Scripture are for our instruction. They're for our benefit. The the, the word that is typically translated law in the Bible is Torah. That's probably not the best translation of Torah. Torah, the Hebrew mind, meant instruction. It's the way that that Solomon talked to his son in, in Proverbs And I'm not saying that by my own authority. Just think about the way Jesus referred to the Bible. In John chapter 10, Jesus is quoting from the Psalms. But He says, what does the law say? And He he quotes the Psalms. Now, when you and I think about law, what do we think? We we think about something that is regulatory, something that is restricting, something that's going to bring a punishment with it, a fine with it. We don't think of the Psalms that way. We think of the Psalms as having promises. We think of the Psalms as providing vocabulary for us when our hearts are breaking. We think of the Psalms as providing promises for us and warming our hearts and comforting us. And Jesus said, the law says, but he didn't, probably didn't say that. That's our English word. He says the Torah says. The whole Bible is Torah. The whole Bible is instruction. The whole Bible are the words of a father given to his treasured possession. And when you're tempted to think he's not being sensitive to me, he's trying to ruin my fun. He's trying to he's trying to narrow my life. He's, he's forbidding me for prohibiting me from something that I know would bring pleasure to me. Why is God so narrow-minded? You must remember that it's because you are His treasured possession. He give. He doesn't tell you to do anything except out of His desire to treat you as His treasured possession. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of participating in the Presbyterian Day School's graduation, their commencement ceremony, and, and Steve Hancock, our tremendous headmaster who's been called away to another uh, job, was giving his last address to the boys who were graduating, and he he was he was, uh, he was compelling them to follow the Lord and to follow the God's law. And he, he said, he, he, he talked about a time when he was a little boy, and he learned what, uh, what rules are really for. He said that he had really longed for the day when he could mow the yard. He quickly got over that, but he had longed for the day when he could mow the yard himself. And so the day came when his dad said, Today is the day." And He gave him a lawnmower for the job, but it was a real lawnmower. Not an R-E-A real lawnmower, R-E-A-L, but an R-E-E-L lawnmower. That means it was nothing with a motor on it. It it looks like a honeycomb, and and it's self-propelled, it's propelled by yourself. But it only works well on short grass. You have to keep ahead of the grass. So his dad said, "Here's the, here's I'm entrusting this to you, son. And, and so he, he gave him the lawnmower, and he said, Now you cut the grass every five days, and everything will go fine. He, he did it first few times. Every five days, job was over and, over and done, an hour or so, maybe less. But then he said, You know, my dad's old school. The grass doesn't need to be cut every five days. Day seven, still doesn't need to be cut. Eight, nine, ten, okay, today maybe is good. Took him four hours. Because when the grass is long, it winds around the reel. It's much harder. He realized his dad's rule was not to to hinder his life, but so that life would go well with him. All of God's Word... Every one of his commands, every one of his promises, every one of his instructions, his descriptions of the way life really is are not intended to hinder your life, but so that life would go well with you. In fact, the name he gave to his son was the Word become flesh. Can you look at the face of Jesus, the Word of God, and say, oh, He doesn't want life to go well with me? You cannot argue that with Jesus, the one who gave His life so that life would go well with you now and into eternity. And So the text is framed first by worship and then we respond to worship with obedience to God's gracious Word. And then just in case you don't believe me, you have to see at the heart of this passage is God's grace, His relationship. Verses 4 to 6, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. By the way, remember I said that we are confirmed in in our confidence that God's Word is from God that what is written by Moses and then and, uh, what is canonized thereafter in the tradition of Moses is reliable. It's been objectively confirmed because of the signs they saw on Mount Sinai. But here are even stronger signs. They not only saw indirectly the signs of God's presence, they saw God. And so those who saw God confirmed that what Moses wrote down, and therefore everyone else who wrote in the tradition of Moses, which includes all the Bible, has been confirmed by those who have seen God, those who have seen the resurrected Christ. And so Moses, all the people, uh, verse 4, all the people answered with one voice said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. And then look down at verse 11. Remember that after they saw and they beheld God, they ate and they drank. What's going on here? God is showing these Old Testament people of God as well as us that He not only only has made atonement for our sins, He welcomes us into fellowship with Him. Now, the the atonement for our sins is clear enough, isn't it? We're we're sort of familiar with these burnt offerings and all of this blood being spilled in the Old Testament of lambs and innocent animals in the place of sinners. This is God making a covenant. God God is saying, okay, we're going to come to an agreement. I'm going to make certain promises to you, and you're going to make certain promises to me. And whoever breaks these promises on either side will give his or her life blood for it. And so Moses slays an animal. He takes one bucket of blood and he pours it on the altar, representing God, sealed by that blood, sealing uh, His promises with His own blood, if, if, if I break my promise, may my blood be spilled. And then the other half, he pours on the people of God, he splashes it on the people of God. He's saying, if, if you break your part, you will shed your blood too. And then that, that sacrifice that was that was bled out is now burned and totally consumed. What's the image? Who broke the covenant? Only we have broken the covenant. Only the people of Israel ever broke the covenant. God has never broken the covenant. So why isn't their blood spilled? remember only one animal was slain all of the blood was taken from that one animal and god was giving them a hint already. God was giving them a foretaste already. This is the way I will redeem you. You will be the breakers of the covenant, but I will have to fulfill your obligation to the covenant as well as my own. My son will be the last lamb, and his blood will atone for you and make peace with me. That's atonement. Satisfaction for sin. It's only by that blood of the atonement that the the people were not killed, the anticipation of the the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But that's not all that's here. He says uh, in verse 5, here is the center of the passage, sacrificing peace offerings. What was a peace offering? It's not a burnt offering. You didn't burn it. Animal was killed, but then the worshipper sat down with the priest and they ate together. It, it's what happened later in, in verse 11. They sat down, they beheld God, and with God, they sat down and ate and drank. This, this is what happens in, in every culture in a peace treaty, when, when enemies are being reconciled, when friends come together, what do they do? They eat. They eat together. The, the ancient root of the word hospitality goes back to the same word that, from which we get hostile So the Romans, uh, when they talked about guests and hosts, the the same word was used for both. And and in Roman times, here's what happened. When the host wanted to welcome a foreigner and take up the foreigner's cause and advocate for it to the Roman authorities. That, 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 that guest who had no rights, maybe that guest who was in danger of being thrown out, that guest who was in danger of being punished, the host would welcome him into his home, feed him a meal, and by eating the same meal, sharing the same meal, the image was that they were bound together. And the host's identity was transferred to the foreigner, and the foreigner's identity was transferred to the host. And the host, therefore, stood in front of the Roman authorities and said, this man is accepted because he is my friend. This man is accepted. We share the same food." Does that sound familiar to anything that you and I do in the church? When Jesus Christ said, this is My body. This is the new… is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. Take and eat, drink from it, all of you. And as you do so, you are anticipating that day when you'll join at the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is… this is the supper. That Jesus sets with His own blood-stained hands for us, and by it, just as God said here, Jesus says to us again and again, "I not only want to make atonement for you so that you are not punished. I'm not only forestalling the hand of God's wrath against you. I am welcoming you into my fellowship. We are at peace. We are friends." He is saying, not only do I love you, I like you. I want to spend time with you. I want to share a meal with you. The only condition of coming is that you take me as your Lord and Savior. You know, I've been reading a lot in the last few years just about eating. We've come to take eating, dining, meals for granted. We drive through, we drive down a lane in a parking lot and they shove food out of the window at us. You go to the grocery store, you get the food that's already prepared. Heat it up, eat it. We take it for granted. In the old days, it didn't take food for granted. If You wanted chicken, you had to go catch a chicken, kill it. And it cost you a chicken. If you wanted fruit, you had to pick it. You wanted bread, you had to harvest the grain. You had to, had to produce it and to transform it into bread. And so when you put a meal down, it cost you something. And, and likewise, because it cost you so much, you... You only had friends to the table. So there is a sense in which every meal that we enjoy, every meal that we enjoy is an answer to the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer to give us our daily bread. And every meal should be paused before, and we should think, you know, God has provided this food for me, and God has provided this food for me as as His friend. Not only does He dine with me at the Lord's Supper, He he dines with me three times a day. God is so intent on communicating to me that I'm His friend. And if He makes us friends with Himself, He must make us friends with each other. I'm sure I've told you before about my, the man I greatly admire, as a preacher and a, a scholar of a teacher of preaching, Fred Craddock, at the Emory School of Theology, Candler School of Theology, and I'm sure Fred Craddock has preached many times at Christ Methodist. He's he's a gift of capturing, the gospel in everyday life and the. It's a story he told a long time ago about it being invited to Winnipeg to uh, give a lecture series, and, <clears throat> and b- b- by the time he got there on the bus, he, he, the, the whole place was encased in a blizzard, and the host of the lecture series said, Dr. Craddock, I'm so sorry. Not only can we not have the lecture series, we can't even get to where you are to, to, to say hello to you. He said, "Well, what am I supposed to do?" He said, "Well, there's a little diner down the down the street. Just I think you can walk there. You'll find a place to get warm, have a warm meal, and you can hop back on the bus and go home." He made his way down to that diner, and and uh, and everybody else had had the same idea. He came into the diner. It was warm, but as soon as anyone came through the door, the the cook who was in a very bad mood would yell at them, "Shut the door! You're letting the heat out." It seemed to be crammed full, but two people wedged their way out and made a, a, a spot for him at the counter. He ordered a, a bowl of soup that said he wasn't sure what it was. It was just gray, but at least it was warm. Then a, a young mom, maybe a young mother came in, opened the door, shut the door. People made way for her to get up to the counter cook rudely asked, what do you have? She said, just a glass of water. Okay, sure, but then what? I I don't need anything else, just a glass of water. Then get out. Only paying customers here. If you're not going to eat, not going to order something, get out of my restaurant. She slowly got up, started to leave. Two men on either side of her then also got up, started to leave then the two others and others until the whole restaurant had stood up and was making their way out of the restaurant. Oh, no, 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 the cook said, okay, 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 she can stay. Everybody sit down. He let her stay. even gave her a bowl of gray soup. And Craddock turned to his neighbor and said, who is that lady? He said, I don't know. I don't know who she is, but if she ain't welcome, I ain't staying, neither the rest of us." Craddock said that gray soup started tasting better and it reminded him of another meal, the meal of the family of God, the Lord's Supper, and in it we must say, If you ain't welcome, I ain't welcome. We're one family. And if Jesus can welcome me to the table, He can welcome you. And if Jesus can welcome me and call me brother, I am going to call you brother or sister. And if God can call me His friend and eat and drink with me, you're going to be my friend, thick or thin. My brothers and sisters, the devil is about much mischief, and he is trying to divide us as he always is, nothing new. He's always trying to divide the body of Christ. He's always trying to divide Christians. He's always trying to get a foothold and create a schism. The devil is so creative, he can divide us over masks. He's so creative, He can divide us over the pandemic. He is so creative, He can divide us over the cars we drive. Or He he can divide us over where we live or how we educate our children. He can divide us over skin color. He tries to divide us over the way we vote. And any, any of those things... Even Christians have the ability to say, you don't vote the way I do, you don't think the way I do, you express yourself the way I do about things not prescribed in Scripture. You, you, don't, uh, you don't act the way I do, then I'm going to dismiss you. You're not going to be my friend. You're not going to be my brother or sister. You don't have that right, and I don't either. And Jesus who stands behind this table with blood Stained hands and feet and from his head and his side says to you, if you're going to come near to me, you can't get nearer to me without giving nearer to each other. We must, brothers and sisters, resist all efforts of the evil one to divide us, and that we must express our unity in such a way that people look at us, look at us no matter what comes in this pandemic, no matter what comes in this economy, no matter what comes in this election. They must look at us and say, my, how astoundingly they love each other. There's no other explanation said that they've been loved by God in Jesus Christ let's do it let's pray our Lord King Jesus the prince of darkness is grim but we tremble not for him his rage we can endure his doom is sure Greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, galvanize us together in the name of Christ. Come what may, we will be defined in our relationship with each other only by our acceptance our being atoned for, our being made peace with through Jesus Christ. In His name we pray it. God's people said, amen.